reading this morning is from Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. So he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things and parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil, and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And these are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, again, it's good to be with you and to uh, turn to God's Word. I suppose there are other things you could be doing. You could be watching Netflix documentaries about Tiger Kings, but you could be sleeping in. You could be uh, going on a walk on a, a beautiful morning, but uh, we need God's Word. And again, I think after a week like this, uh, that has been so difficult, where the news is so hard, where the end seems so far off. Uh, we certainly need God's perspective. So let's go in prayer. Father, we do pray that you would give us ears to hear, that we may see and perceive, that we may hear and understand. So send your spirit and work your word in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, doubt is something of a modern virtue. We often contrast it with faith. It's often, uh, it's often held up that it is, of course, if you doubt, that means that you are somebody who is thoughtful, who's a critical thinker. And by contrast, if you have faith, 
or you walk by faith, it's a kind of blindness. It's a kind of unreflective life. And I think a lot of that rhetoric we hear, even as those who are uh, not religiously affiliated, continues to grow. Those numbers continue to grow over year over year. The most reliable local data that we have is back from the 2010 census. Charleston County, 10 years ago, was already 43% religiously unaffiliated, which is to say nothing of those who might say that, you know, identify with a particular tradition but not really be engaged. So Charleston County was already large. I mean, nationally, uh, last year, the Pew Research found that 40% of millennials, those of you born after 1981, 40% are unaffiliated. And that category continues to grow. But what's fascinating is, while there may be people who say they are Christians and buy into that kind of distinction between faith and doubt, it's not rooted in Scripture at all. In fact, what we find throughout the Bible are all kinds of expressions of at least some form of doubt. Maybe you're going through the Psalms right now, which I think you could do a lot worse than to stay in the Psalms when we're going through such a difficult time. And over and over again, what do you hear? But people crying out, how, are you, have you forgotten about us? How long, O oh Lord? Are you there? Those expressions are all throughout the Bible. As, as we're going through the Gospels, you see this with the disciples. They're full of doubts. These are guys who spent night and day with Jesus for years. Full of doubts. And throughout the, the whole of Christian history, great thinkers have always expressed this. A few years back, after Mother Teresa died, some of her letters came out, and she, she had written about her doubt, and it was treated as if this was some great scandal. But of course, what I'm saying, what I think is clear in Scripture, is that there are some doubts that are always there, and we all struggle with doubts at some level. So maybe that's especially obvious and especially helpful a category to think through on Palm Sunday. Because this is the Sunday where we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. People were singing a psalm. They were going back to Psalm 118, thinking about Jesus, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But five days from then, that crowd would be crying out to crucify Jesus. What changed in five days? So as we get in our series to Mark to this passage, it's helpful for us to think about three things. First, the manifestations of doubt. Second, the source of doubt. And third, the resolution of doubt. So the manifestations of it, the source of it, and the resolution of it. And think about these manifestations of doubt. You already see that Jesus along the way, if you've been, if you've been with us through this series, has faced rejections of different sorts. And, or in a variety of different responses. And he starts to paint a picture here as he tells this parable, which is really a parable about parables. I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, Jesus has, there aren't actually as many parables in Mark as there are in some of the other Gospels. Matthew certainly has more, and then Luke is really known for being a Gospel with lots of different parables. Um, some of the most famous ones are in that, in that Gospel. But Jesus has told a few. In fact, the the illustrations he used about Satan were called parables that we saw last week. And, uh, and this is the parable, though, about what happens when you hear parables. 
This is about what happens to you, what, what's going on. And the way Jesus describes it is that the word of the kingdom comes to you. And you respond in different ways. And so the first way of responding to this is the path. This is verse 4, and then he explains it in verse 15. This is, this is when you hear the word, but immediately you recognize that it is a challenge to you, and you don't want to listen to it. And he describes it as Satan, the one who is the accuser, the liar, showing up and snatching it away. It's, in other words, this is, this is a kind of immediate response of rejection. And it is rooted certainly in seeing some kind of ch- immediate challenge to who you are. So that could look like, or probably does look like the good news actually sounding like an accusation. So maybe you struggle with a particular moral issue involved in the gospel. You know, the issue du jour, of course, is sexuality. That's been uh, a, a prominent discussion over the last several years and, and the church's position on it. And so maybe you or your close friends don't necessarily conform to what the Bible teaches. And so when you hear the word, you recognize immediately it's a threat to that. And so it comes across as an accusation. Maybe it's money. Later on in Mark, in, uh, in chapter 10, I think it is, uh, there will be a rich man who shows up to talk to Jesus. And when Jesus challenges how he uses his money, he walks away. So it could be a particular moral issue, something like that. It could just be a broader sense of uh, our kind of American identity, that we have the right, we have the freedom to call our own shots. And, and when we're told about the gospel, all we hear is, oh, well, you're not in charge anymore. I don't know if I want to deal with that. And there are plenty of religious options that leave you in charge, but the gospel is not one of them. So the gospel then comes across more as an accusation than actual good news. That the word about what Jesus has done for you, which is the core of the message, is obscured. And so it is immediately unfruitful. Then Jesus goes on to the shallow soil, verse 5. He explains it in verses 16 and 17. And those are, these are those who initially hear it and think, oh, this sounds great. I like this. This sounds like a good, a good, a good offer. I, I'll take that. But as soon as persecution comes along, see, there's sh- it's shallow, right? There's, there's no depth to the belief. And as soon as the heat comes, summer arrives, the sun's beaten down, it dies. And, and I can tell you from years in campus ministry, I saw this happen a lot. People who had grown up in the faith, and this was their first time really away from home, their first time really deeply involved in, in lo- the lives of people that were different from them. And the minute they heard criticism, the minute they were kind of challenged or perhaps even mocked for what they believed, they started to wilt. This is a real challenge when the primary way of the American church is tempted to talk about the gospel is in terms of our immediate happiness. 
It's not to say the gospel doesn't want us to be happy, but when, it, when we're talking about sort of our immediate emotional needs, <laughs> uh, our immediate response, if that's all that we have, then we have very little to offer. And you saw, you, you know, those of you who remember going to church after September 11th, you know what it was like. You had to find the right hymns. And there were some churches that had literally nothing to sing that Sunday, nothing that was really appropriate. And so when we present a version of the gospel that is just like, well, you know, it's just ever onward and upward, everything's going to be great, then we are setting ourselves up, we are setting our children up, we're setting uh, those who might walk into our doors up for failure because the gospel doesn't promise that tomorrow is going to be easy. It promises that eternity will be blessed. So that's the shallow soil. And then there's the overgrown soil in verse 6. He explains it more in uh, verses 18 and 19. He says, look, this is, this is similarly, it's, the seeds does start to take root and it starts to grow, but other things are there growing as well. The weeds are growing. All the other things that, that grow up are, are there and they start to choke it out. He, he identifies them as the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and desires for other things. So, again, Jesus is not saying, look, your, your cares and concerns are unimportant. The question is, what's most important? The question isn't whether or not you need to be concerned about how you're going to pay the bills or not, or your career, or any of those other things, but are they center stage? Are they the most time-consuming, energy-consuming, attention-consuming aspects of your life. Because we all face that temptation sooner or later. And of course, the, then deceitfulness of riches is, is obviously connected to those cares, right? Because money is, money is a funny thing, right? It's, nobody, nobody actually cares about money as a thing. And may, maybe, maybe somebody Scrooge McDucks it out there and, uh, and swims around in their money, but most of us don't care about the... the the tangible thing. In fact, most of us can't, don't even actually have the tangible money anywhere, right? It's in an account. It's kept, you know, it's kept track of, right? It means something other than the, the tangible item, right? It means security, significance. It means, uh, it means the, the ability to have what you want when you want it. it whatever, we can get further than that. It's a whole other sermon, right? But it is an expression, in other words. It's a tangible expression of our cares in the world. And then if that's not enough, there's the desire for, for other things, which is a really obviously enormous category. And Jesus uses a particular Greek word, epithumia, for desires. It means over-desire. It means a desire that's out of proportion. It, is a, it, uh, it, it means that you want something in a way that is really, it's really not that significant. And of course, what Jesus is saying is, look, God, of course, is the most significant. The word of this kingdom is the most significant. That ought to be the most significant thing in your life. And anything that you desire more than that is a threat to it. And the thing is, we rarely recognize those desires. And especially in the church, we're really good at fooling ourselves into thinking, well, of course God's most important in my life. Honestly, I think most of the Pharisees fit into this category. They're convinced that God is the most important thing in their life. But what Jesus goes about exposing is that they're really more 
concerned about their own standing in the world. They're really more concerned about their own sense of entitlement than they are about God. There's an interesting illustration of this uh, that's told in Charles Taylor's enormous book called A Secular Age. He is a Canadian philosopher, but he tells a story about Lord Kenneth Clark, who was in the mid-century a famous British uh, uh, art and kind of cultural critic. He was on the BBC a lot. And he tells a story. This is, this is the story Lord Clark tells. He says, I had a religious experience. It took place in the church San Lorenzo, but it did, it did not seem to be connected with the harmonious beauty of the architecture. I can only say that for a few minutes, my whole being was radiated by a kind of heavenly joy, far more intense than anything I had ever experienced before. This state of mind lasted for several minutes, but wonderful as it was, it posed an awkward problem in terms of action. My life was far from blameless. I would have to reform. My family would think I was going mad, and perhaps after all it was a delusion, for I was in every way unworthy of such a flood of grace. Gradually the effect wore off, and I made no effort to retain it. I think I was right. I was too deeply embedded in the world to change course. But I felt but I had felt the finger of God, I'm quite sure. You see, what he's getting at, and what he's at least being honest with himself about, right, is that he had a he had a sense of the transcendent. It had something had clicked. But, and he's certainly thinking of Christianity here, but he realized that if he were to follow that path, there were things that would have to change in his life, and he really wasn't willing to change them. And so What's fascinating here is that all of these things apply as much to anybody who's a Christian as a non-Christian. That there are always cares of the world, there's always persecution, there are always, there are always accusations that come at us. And the question then is, what is the good soil? In verse 8, that Jesus describes in verse 20, Jesus actually doesn't tell us much about it other than the word sinks in deeper. And it grows. This is the uh, eighth time in the book of Mark that the crowds have been mentioned at the beginning of this passage. And Jesus is acutely aware that he is popular. But he's not impressed with his own popularity because he knows that for many the word is not sinking in. But you do know that when when a seed sinks in and takes root and a plant begins to grow, it can become a powerful thing. We've all seen pictures of seeds that fall into the crack of a stone, right? And it will break the stone apart. If you have a tree growing next to your house, you better do something about it because it will destroy your house. It will take out your foundation because with time, though it doesn't grow quick like the weeds, a healthy tree will will really tear up anything that's around it. But it will grow slowly over time. And so Jesus, uh, although he's imagining wheat here, he's, 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 he's giving the same image, right? It will outgrow. The seed that goes deep and starts to grow in a healthy way will outgrow over time the weeds. It will be healthier. It can withstand the heat of summer. It, the birds won't bother it because it will go deep enough. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, with time, 
there is a kind of healthy growth that comes. And we'll return back to that in a moment. But you can see all these different manifestations of doubt clearly in those first three different soils. And it's helpful then to understand the source of it by understanding what Jesus says when when his disciples ask him about it. So we have all those manifestations, but what's the source? And what's fascinating here is Jesus ends the parable initially in verse 9 by using an expression that he uses uh, many times in the gospel that, you know, let, let those who have ears hear. Kind of, a, kind of a strange saying, but you actually, you find where he's picked up that language from when his disciples ask him, what are these parables about? Why do you keep telling them? And he quotes from Isaiah 6. Now, Isaiah 6 is a fascinating passage. There's way more there than I can possibly summarize here, but it's the moment that Isaiah is called by God to be a prophet. And he has this huge vision. He's in the temple, but then his eyes are sort of open spiritually, and he sees that it's the throne room of God. And the train of God's robe fills the whole place. And, it's this, and there's all kinds of different things going on in that that are fascinating. But when he's commissioned to be the prophet, in a weird way, God says, go. But look, you're going to go to people that don't understand what you're saying. They're not going to listen. And it plays off an image that connected with idolatry throughout the Old Testament. It goes back to the golden calf in the book of Exodus. And, uh, and it, it shows up in a couple of different Psalms and in Jeremiah 2 and some other places. This idea that if you go and worship those idols made of stone and wood, and metal, then you will become like them spiritually. And you will become deaf and blind. So that you will hear, but you'll never understand. You'll see, but you won't perceive. You see, you even see the Apostle Paul picking up a similar language, ex- exchanging glor- the glory of God uh, for the creatures in Romans 1. And this idea being that you become like the thing that you worship. And if you're worshiping something other than the living God, you will become spiritually inert. You'll have a hardened heart. You'll have a stiff neck. That's the the phrase he uses in Exodus. Just like that calf. And you will, in other words, what what all this is saying in the context of Isaiah is, look, you're going to go and you're going to preach this message. And it is an amazing message. I mean, it, there are tough, tough moments of judgment, but there are beautiful, beautiful moments of God's reassurance and God's promises in Isaiah. But in that preaching, the people will reject you. Because in that preaching, it will confirm the hardness of their hearts. And Jesus is saying this then, that I teach in parables to expose the heart. See, because the thing that's amazing about a parable, these subversive stories that Jesus tells, is that the information's all there. Anyone can understand the story. There's no mystery in that. There's no mystery in the story. It's all there for anyone to understand. We can all understand what's going on. But... Will you take it to heart? Will you let the story sink in? Will you let your imagination be transformed by the story? Or will you simply say, oh, that's a nice teaching. I'll just carry on with what I was doing. A good illustration of this would be 
the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. Anybody can understand that story. Uh, it's a story about a guy who's injured and all the religious leaders walk by him and then one Samaritan who none of them, none of the good Jews of the time liked, helps out the man. And it's a story about being a good neighbor. And at one level, of course, anybody sees and understands that Jesus is saying, look, you should watch out for those who are in need and take care of them. Of course. But will you reflect deeper? Will you reflect that, on, uh, that it is a calling a profound weight? In fact, will you think deeper and recognize that it is a calling of such profound weight that you cannot possibly love your neighbor that way consistently? And it might actually turn out that we are the person dying on the side of the road that needs help. You see, in other words, will you, and that's just a short illustration, but Jesus is, in other words, telling these parables to expose our heart. That's why this is the parable about parables, because Jesus is saying, look, when I tell these parables, this is what it's like to respond to it. And there's going to be different responses, and some people will blow it off, and some will think this is a nice thing for a while, and some people will you know, convince themselves they're part of this, but there's other things that are really much more important to them. It, in, other, in, in other words, he's saying what really it exposes is the idols that you worship. I tell these stories to expose our hearts. The story in the way that you engage the stories that he tells about the kingdom of God shows us who we are. And so this is the source of doubt is the heart. Now, I don't mean to dismiss particular questions people might have, right? And there's a place for what we call apologetics, defending the faith. Uh, I hope You've probably heard me mention different issues along the way in sermons, and I think this is, these, are, these are important questions to ask. But they are, and this is essential to understand, they're weighty questions because they are motivated questions. They're questions of motivated belief. Whether or not, they, they, they expose our prior commitments, right? Not, not whether one question is really the damning question or not, but they expose the kinds of things that we value and the things that we think are most important. So while they are important questions, the problem of evil, the problem of other religions, uh, various ethical questions, judgment, what that means, the trustworthiness of the Bible, all these different things that we could sort of point to, while they're important questions and they need answers, they are questions of the heart. The reason they have traction is because of some motivating factor in us. And look, the Bible is actually not alone in saying this. Over the last decade or so, there's been a whole host of books that have come out on psychology pointing out that, in fact, we don't really make decisions usually in a very rational way. We tend to make them from our gut. In fact, my, my favorite book in this genre is called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, who's a professor at NYU. And, uh, and what, this is what he says. He says, the first principle of moral psychology is intuitions come first, strategic reasoning second. Intuitions come first, strategic reasoning second. In other words, we first get a gut reaction to something, and then we try to figure out why we, why we want to go that way. 
And of course, in the book, he sort of unpacks, like, what, what does it mean to deal with all this? But, but you get what he's saying, right? What matters is your deepest desires, because what the Bible talks about when it talks about the heart is not just your immediate emotions. This isn't, this isn't the heart as it's described in so many songs or Disney movies. This is the heart as the deep commitments and desires that define who we are. That's what the Bible means when it's talking about the heart. And so one theologian summarizes it well. He says, uh, a guy named Ashley Knoll, he says, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. So that the question of our doubts comes back to our, what are our deep commitments? What is it that our hearts are really most attached to? And you can see then why there's a different, why the difference here in these soils is not whether people face different cares of the world because everyone faces cares of the world. Or whether people face any kind of difficulty or persecution because everyone does. And the question isn't whether you face accusations from the evil one because everyone faces those. The question is whether those take root deeper than the word of God. The question is not whether you deal with some doubts individually, personally. The question is whether those doubts have dug deeper than the Word of God. In other words, the source, to sum it up then, of doubt is always our hearts, is always the things that we value most. So what is the resolution to all this? Where does all this go? And it's fascinating, Jesus has been talking about these soils, but he doesn't actually describe what makes you good soil. What process goes through that? I mean, and you can imagine that in the background, and for those that are living in a primarily agricultural society, that they're thinking, well, that must be, that must be land that's been tilled up, right? That's been fertilized. They're, they're thinking about all those things that go into it. And while Jesus doesn't describe all that, the question is then how does somebody become fertile soil? Because if you're asking yourself, well, doesn't, isn't Jesus just implying that some people are just kind of more ready for it than other people inherently? Well, the rest of the Bible speaks against that viewpoint. In fact, Jesus speaks against that viewpoint. But rather, Jesus is saying, look, just recognize what these do to you. These stories, these parables, when the word shows up, it exposes what we are. And the thing about the gospel, the word, is that it is actually also what tills up our hearts. It is itself what goes deep. Do you remember the, the movie Inception? Uh, it's a it's a it's kind of a it's a Christopher Nolan movie, so it's a way overly elaborate plot that I can't possibly summarize. But the key idea was that look, when somebody has a, a, the, the, the way somebody really changes who they are is that they really have an idea that takes root deep in their imagination. And then it grows out from there. And so, you know, so then there's this whole imaginary scenario where there are people who can dive into others' dreams and sort of plant 
uh, imaginative ideas and all that kind of thing. But what the word does is it's a kind of inception. It is a thing that, that we are told about that needs to take root and grow. And what's also fascinating is it's not, ju- it's not just the word in the sense of the Bible. It is the good news of Jesus. It's about understanding that the whole of the Bible is going to him, is driving us to him. That the way that we change is by going back to the good news of Jesus. And in fact, Jesus later uses the same metaphor of a seed to talk about himself. In John 12, 23 and 24, this is what he says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he's talking about his death. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He likens himself to the seed that goes in and dies, metaphorically, in order to produce life. And Jesus is the one then who has died to give us life. This message, the good news, is the word. It's the very thing, the message of what Jesus has accomplished, the thing we will fo- we're focusing on intently this week. That Jesus has come to earth to confront evil, to bear our sins, and to die for us. That is the word. That is the thing that changes our hearts. And if you want an illustration of that, then stick with the Gospels. Because what you will find, and if you read through the Gospel accounts this week, you'll find two characters that stand in juxtaposition to each other. Peter and Judas. One character deceives everybody else. The other character deceives himself. Judas lies to everybody else about what he's doing. Peter is lying to himself. And both of them, in different ways, but both of them betray Jesus. And one of them, Judas, that will take him down a road of despair and self-destruction. And for Peter, it drives him to repentance. And that is the fundamental change in his life. You see, what Peter saw that Judas didn't was that Jesus had died for him and had been raised up for him. The thing that the gospel is about is the very thing we're talking about this week. It is the death of Jesus, Jesus crucified on our behalf and raised up for us. In other words, in that moment, at the cross, we see all of the goodness of God in the self-sacrifice of Jesus. And he gives himself up for us. In that moment, we see all the beauty of God's love for us by giving himself for us. When we could not live a perfect life, Jesus lived for us. We see all the truth of all the, truth, all the things that God is and was and will be for us, that he is the one who gives up his life. The beauty, the goodness, the truth of God is on full display. And that is the thing that has power to change our lives, is to go back to it. And so we talked about last week, Calvin saying that God works in us two ways. He works without by the word and within by the spirit. And so it is by the word of Christ that the spirit acts. 
And that's what changes our heart. That's the place of action. That's where the Spirit works. That's where the Spirit shows up, is to change our hearts. In Romans 5, we're told it is the Spirit who is pouring the love of God into our hearts. That the first and primary place of change is in your heart. And the way there, the way into the heart, is the seed. The way into the heart is the word of Jesus crucified. No wonder Paul could say that his message was Christ and Him crucified. That was the message, and that is the thing that will change your heart. That is the thing we need to be reflecting on this week. Because if you're wondering what kind of soil you are, the question is not really whether you experience the accusations of Satan. The question is not whether you experience difficult times. The question is not whether you have cares in the world that you're worried about. The question is whether you've listened to the Word, whether you've let it take root, whether you've stopped and thought long and hard and lovingly about all that Jesus has done for you. That's the invitation for this week. In one sense, it's the invitation for every single week is to stop and reflect on what Jesus has done for you what the crucified one has done on your behalf so that you might enjoy the light and life and love of God to the fullest. Experience it now in part and one day completely. Let's pray. Father, we need your word to sink in deep. We long to know you and yet we struggle with all kinds of doubts. I pray that the goodness of Jesus would sink into my heart, sink into everyone's hearts here more profoundly, that we might reflect on all that he gave on our behalf. So we might see the depth, the breadth, the height of God's grace for us. We ask all this for Christ's sake. Amen.